0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to pick up at verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that you you would feed us. Father, we pray that you would grant to us repentance. Pray that as we think about John the Baptist, this servant of yours, this man who lived so many years ago and served you so well, Father, that we would be we would be taught, we would be taught to be bold. We would be taught to be zealous for your name. Help us now as we give attention to your word. May every one of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. So last week we gave time to think about John the Baptist's preaching, and his preaching of the law was, in fact, the preaching of the gospel. I want to continue thinking about John the Baptist because we need more men like John the Baptist today in the church. Now, for, for me even to say that makes half the women here angry that I wouldn't say that we need more men and women like that. But I meant what I said. We need more men like John the Baptist to be leading in his church We need men who are willing to contradict, who are willing to oppose, who are willing to call for obedience, who are willing to speak prophetically to our culture and to our church. So that's why we're looking at John the Baptist, because we need more men like John the Baptist today in the church. In the section that immediately precedes uh, the section that I read this morning, um, we learn that John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask a rather perplexing question. They sent him to ask this question, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? How in the world could John, the one who is the forerunner of the expected one, send a question like that to Jesus? Um, That question, I believe, was not indicative of a lapse of faith on the part of John, but rather was John sending his disciples to ask the question so that the disciples would get it. He was pointing his own disciples, making sure they knew and talked to Jesus about him being the expected one. John, in other words, was decreasing While Jesus was increasing, and this is a way of handing off his disciples to Jesus, John was in prison, and he was pointing his disciples, perhaps for the last time, to the one Savior of man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage now this morning, after answering the question of the disciples by pointing to his works, um, Jesus begins speaking about John the Baptist. John's disciples have left the scene and immediately Jesus turns to those who are gathered around him and what does he do? He asks the crowds, which is composed of, the crowd at this point is composed of ordinary people and tax collectors and Pharisees and lawyers. Scribes. And he he asks them a series of questions. The content, and I imagine the tone of those questions is very important. Jesus is very pointed in asking the people about what they think about the forerunner, his forerunner, his friend, John the Baptist. We already know that John was a strange man. Well, strange isn't quite the right word. I, I'd say, pe- it's the word I can't ever say, peculiar. It was peculiar, right? The Gospels of Matthew and Mark teach us that John lived in the wilderness outside of the city gates, in the desert, out where no one lived. He wore a a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. It's very interesting that John's clothing is described in Scripture as if it's significant, right? Is anything in Scripture insignificant? John's clothing is mentioned. Right, His clothing was not normal clothing, and his, his nutrition was not normal nutrition. John was a peculiar man with a particular mission as the forerunner of the Lord, as we thought about um, last week. We also know that John had been performing upon the people, upon the crowds of people, a baptism of repentance. Calling them to repentance, baptizing them for the purpose of repentance, Preparing them for what? For the coming of the Lord Jesus. Many were baptized by John, but many also refused to be baptized by John like the Pharisees. And John would refuse himself to baptize others. So this mixed crowd is gathering together. The disciples of John have just departed. Jesus, knowing that everyone is thinking about this guy, John, decides to speak about him. Perhaps because of John's disciples' questions, many of the crowd are thinking of John. What we are prone to think about John when we read this passage, that John is doubting. How can John the Baptist be doubting that he's wavering, that he's not what he seemed to be? And so even if John send his disciples for the purpose of pointing them toward Jesus, his question could still be interpreted by those who are listening as a sign of his doubt. And Jesus, knowing this, defends his friend, honors his friend before those who are trying to discredit him and disregard him. So he first asks, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? If there's anything we know about John the Baptist, it's this. He, he could not be characterized in any way as a reed shaken by the wind. Back in Luke 3, remember that, that um, he rebukes the Pharisees. Here's a taste of that. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He, he rebukes the, the tax collectors and he also rebukes Roman soldiers just another day at the office, right? He's rebuking Pharisees, tax collectors, and Roman soldiers. Those groups are all the groups that are in power, and yet John takes them all on, and then that passage ends with this little bit of information. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, Herod the Tetrarch, so, so he's got... He's got um, Pharisees, tax collectors, Roman soldiers, and then he decides to take on Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of the region. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, so not only does John go to him and say, you can't have Herodias, it's your brother's wife, that's incest. There were also a whole list of other things, of wicked things, it says here, that Herod had done. And John the Baptist goes to him and points those out. And it says that um, Herod added to the wicked things this. He locked John up in prison. So John the Baptist was no coward. Uh, He had rebuked the most powerful ruler of the region to his face. And for that boldness he would lose his freedom and eventually he would lose his head. Then Jesus asked this question. But what did you go up to what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. A man dressed in soft clothing. This we know too is not true of John. Right? He wore camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist. He did not wear silk and flowing robes or anything. That would be likely to get snagged in the brambles that he's walking through in the desert, All right? Um, I think he wore the first century version of Carhartts, right? That's what this is. If there's something better than Carhartts, then that's what he was wearing. Corey would would correct me on that. Now, he's. This, this word soft, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. This word soft is the Greek malakos. You hear me mention that word all the time because it's used in two other places in our Bibles that are crucial in today's world. In the parallel passage to this one in the Gospel of Matthew, it's used. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where it sits next to the word arsenikoitos, which is the word that's translated homosexual. In 1 Corinthians 6.9, the word soft, the word malakos, is translated effeminate. Effeminate. And in the NISB, they put a, an explanation in the margin, effeminate by perversion. Now, that is redundancy, right? Effeminacy is perversion. It, it, it's not by perversion. Effeminacy is perversion, and is and of itself is perversion. Effeminacy, what is effeminacy then? What does it mean to be a soft man? Right? That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is addressing. Effeminacy is when masculinity is suppressed by someone biologically masculine. Right? When that masculine masculinity is suppressed. It is a man acting like a woman, which is much different than femininity. Which is a beautiful and a good thing. Femininity is a woman acting womanly, a woman acting like a woman. But Malachos, effeminacy, is to hate what God has made you and to begin acting like what you are not. So today, perhaps the best way to express this is to refer to him, in a, excuse me, but this is the best way to describe this. The best way to express this is to refer to a man who is limp wristed or perhaps better is the man who supports the revoice project that's what effeminacy is there's nothing new under the sun is there i mean when jesus walked this earth there were men who wanted to cross dress there were men who wanted to be soft there were men who played the woman there's nothing new under the sun what we're dealing with in our culture has been in culture up to this point And and we think that 1 Corinthians 16, 13, that exhortation for us to act like men really has nothing to do with effeminacy. I mean, it's crazy. Of course it does. First century men knew exactly what it meant to be soft. The first century was a sexually decadent society just as ours is. There is nothing new under the sun. Now... I think it is hilarious that Jesus asked this question of the crowds concerning John the Baptist who was as far away from soft as you could get, right? His clothing was not soft. His demeanor was not soft. His ministry was not soft. He he was a warrior, a fighter. He's a brawler. He's that Carhartt wearing blue collar prophet. That's what John the Baptist is. And his clothing didn't contradict that. He was a hard man. John the Baptist was a hard man. Matthew, Matthew Henry, the, um, the old uh, pastor and commentator on the whole Bible, all of Scripture, says of John, he says this, Was he a man clothed in soft raiment? If so, you would not have gone into the wilderness to see him, but to the court. You went to see one that had his raiment of car- camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. His look and habit showed that he was dead to all the pomps of the world and the pleasures of sense. His clothing agreed with the wilderness he lived in and the doctrine he preached there, that of repentance. His clothing agreed with what he preached, which was a doctrine of repentance. Jesus then says that if you want a man in soft clothing, back in Luke 7, if you want a man wearing flowing purple silks, there's a place you can find him. You can find him in the royal palaces. In the royal palace, Herod and Herod's courtiers, they cared about their bodies about what they wore, about what was in fashion, about luxury, about the clarity of their skin, about, about laying hold of the finer things in life. Now you may think that I'm going too far in my application of this passage, but I don't think so. Think of what Jesus is saying here. Think of what Jesus is saying here. He's pointing toward fashion and he's making a statement about what fashion indicates about a man's disposition toward the world and toward his father in heaven. He asked them if they came out to see a man in effeminate soft garments. Did you come out to see a man in a purple silky robe? He asked them if they came out to a fashion show, and he implies that if they did, they have no idea what kind of man John was and what kind of ministry he was called to. Tim Bailey, in in his book, The Grace of Shame, you'll remember, says this. You see what Jesus is saying. John the Baptist wasn't one of the malachoi, Because the malachoi aren't out in the wilderness. Prophets don't dress themselves soft. They don't have an effeminate bearing. They don't dress and talk and carry themselves like women. Prophets aren't gay. John the Baptist was a man's man, and men who want to enter the kingdom of God, will imitate him. Like John the Baptist, violent men will take the kingdom of heaven by force. Right? It it used to be that men were mocked relentlessly for gazing into a mirror and spending time on their hair. Now, now, young men have more product and They're expected to take more time grooming themselves than a woman. I know you think I'm going too far in my application of this passage, but it's made it to hair product. Modern man pampers himself. Modern man cultivates softness. Right? But let me tell you, when a man gets caught up in fashion, when a man gets caught up in fashion, he is worthless for the kingdom of God worthless. Being malakoy, being soft, is fashion. And it is fashionable to be soft today. When a man gets caught up in clothing and fashion and pedicures and manicures and victimhood and crying so that you can be seen in abdication, softness and effeminacy, in short, his utility for doing anything for Christ's kingdom has taken a, a serious and really a fatal hit until he repents of that softness, he should expect that his demeanor, his worldliness, his un-John the Baptistness, will betray his message. I mean, the loss of masculinity today is a direct result of the rise of feminism, the rise of effeminacy, the hatred of masculinity, all of which derive from an really an abject and satanic rejection of and hatred for the fatherhood of God. Fatherhood. He is not a mother. God is a father. And that is, is that significant? Do you know when we'll see strength and peace and holiness return to our churches? When we have repented of our narcissistic effeminacy, brothers, and returned to muscular Christianity, you know, when the fatherhood of God and the masculinity of Jesus means something to both the men and the women of the church, then we'll know that the church is repenting. Too many men today are living in the royal palaces of their effeminacy, right? You may not wear purple robes, but your mind and your decisions are wearing purple robes. Too many men would rather wear flowing silks in the king's palace, live in the world, than the camel hair garments in the wilderness and live in the kingdom. God gave us men who are men and women who are women. Astonishing that that needs to be said today. Our culture is dying and the proof of it is the confusion about what it means to be a man. What it means to be a woman. and What it means to be a man is being given to the, the work of defending and governing and loving and corresponding to that. What it means to be a woman is given the work of nurturing and supporting and loving. Right? Those in power are almost inevitably trapped by the fashion of the day, aren't they? They are faddish. They are faddish both culturally and intellectually. They, they must do what is respectable at the moment. They know what roles they must play. You know, th- th- our, our cultural elites know the roles they must play. They must oppose climate change. They must look suspiciously on anybody who's a creationist. And they must view masculinity as toxic. To reside in the king's palace, they must wear the dress of popular opinion and pamper themselves with the the majority thought. Not so with the Christian. Not so with the one who fears God. Who, like John the Baptist, should speak what God has spoken, which since the beginning has always been unfashionable, has always been unrespectable, and has always been contrary to popular opinion. And that's just another way of saying contrary to sin. Right? He wears, the Christian should wear the clothing of the prophet, the clothing of the dissenter, right? Orange on St. Patrick's Day, please. He refrains from what is fashionable at the effeminate boutique of the university. That's all the university is today, is an effeminate boutique selling purple robes. So am I making sense? Do, does male and female mean anything? The fact that Jesus said from the beginning that God made them male and female, does that mean anything? Can we apply it to our sexual anarchy today? And and I say we have to. We cannot, we cannot ignore this rather obvious obvious problem and sin in our culture. We have to go in this direction. Now Jesus asked another question, but what did you go out to see? A prophet. This time Jesus gives them the benefit of the doubt. Yes, he says, but then he goes on to say that John the Baptist is more than a prophet. So if you came out for a prophet, you're getting more than a prophet here. More than a prophet, the prophets of the Old Testament came along and God gave them a message to tell the people, but John the Baptist being the last of the Old Testament prophets, in a sense, was himself prophesied about. He is a prophesied about prophet, right? This is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Wow. Wow. And then Jesus has this to say about his friend. I say to you among those born of women there is no one greater than John. Don't forget that the backdrop for this whole scene is the fact that John is in prison. And there are many in the crowd who take that affliction to be an indication that John is to be despised. That he's rejected by God. He's languishing in prison. There are many who look at John's situation and think what a a tragic end to a tragic life. They think that he probably should have been quiet. That he probably shouldn't have sabotaged his ministry because he could have gone on for another 20 years speaking speaking to to no one in power. They think that he should have built bridges, you know, so as to have more time to point people toward Christ. They think that at times he lacked discretion. He was strapped with anger issues. He was He was too manly, too much like those old judges of Israel, Ehud and Samson, right? Too little nuance. I mean, Samson pushes over a building, kills himself, kills the Philistines. It's kind of crude, isn't it? And to this disgusting judgment, Jesus says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. (laughs) Ha, ha. You can think what you like about John, but among those born of women, there has been no one greater. That John is in prison is his glory. That John will lose his life for the sake of the Son of Man is his glory. Right? That John has taken up his cross and dies daily is his glory. That John had no desire to be fashionable, to be nuanced, to be sophisticated, to be syncretized and half-zealous is his glory. That John sits in prison awaiting his fate because he told a wicked and oppressive ruler that he was wicked and oppressive, that's his glory, right? That John will decrease to death and that that Jesus might increase is his glory. That John is friendless due to his zeal for the kingdom is his glory, right? And all of this zeal, all of his faith, all of his strength, all of his wholehearted devotion adds up to this accolade from the mouth of the one who made him and knew him before the worlds were made. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I mean, it's glory. No one greater. Think of all the people who had lived before John that we would say are certainly more historically significant than, you know, Carhartt wearing blue-collar prophet John the Baptist. Eight locusts. I mean, bugs. And then, and then Jesus says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And our mind starts going, okay, dissonance, what in the world is going on here? Jesus, explain yourself. That's, that's, that's just perplexing. Our thoughts start having thoughts. We have the same head-scratching reaction as when Jesus um, made the statement about the first being last and the last being first. What, what does that mean? What are we to make of this statement? What do we make of the fact that Jesus saying, John is the greatest man born of women, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is this. When it comes to being born of a woman, no greater man has been born. But when it comes to those in the kingdom of heaven which is a higher gift and not for everyone who was born of a woman the least there is greater than the greatest born of a woman. It's, it's place. It's place. Right? John is the greatest man this side of glory but all those who will be glorified will be greater than John. That's what it's saying. Right? And he will be greater there than he was being the greatest here, born of a woman. So the statement of Jesus is meant to show the amazing glory of being a resident of God's kingdom, a member of God's household, an adopted son of God. Of those born of a woman, John was the greatest, but every single person adopted into God's household has something greater and something more wonderful than he had. Jesus is speaking of the glory given to him, given to you, if you are his. Jesus is speaking of the unfathomable riches of being in Him. There is one glory of being born of a woman, and there's a greater glory of being born again by the Spirit. If you understand this statement, then you will be free to live as John the Baptist lived, right? Not going about fearing man in trying to figure out how to maintain your reputation by adhering to the latest fashions and the latest respectable intellectual position, you are happy to be a fool for Christ, happy to preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Being great in the kingdom of God means you are free to live this life in a certain glorious way. You are free to die. You're free to lose. You're free to belittle. You're free to be persecuted. You're free to be unencumbered by the latest fad, particularly effeminacy. You're free to give up friends. You're free to give up status. You're free to give up companionship. You're free to give up your life for Christ, right? There is a greater glory than being born of a woman. There's a greater glory found in being a citizen of heaven, of being one who lives on this earth as if they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Right? Like Abraham. And you know what living like this means for you. Well, it says this in the next verse of Hebrews. It says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. And He has prepared a city for them. Just as Jesus was not ashamed of John, right? So too, Jesus is not ashamed of those who live as John lived because they long for a better country. They do not live for now, they live for what's to come. Living for God will look like the life of John the Baptist, man of God, and it will consist of this For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Amen? Is that the life you want to live to the glory of God? Do you want to give up scheming? Do you want to give up trying to clamor for status? Do you want to give up just going from fad to fad? Well, then live for Christ. Live as a member of his kingdom. And speak like John the Baptist spoke, and you will have a very interesting life, to say the least. Get yourself into some heated arguments and love people by telling them about Jesus. Let's pray.